everybody, and welcome to another episode of ABC Gotham. My name is Kate, and with me, as always, is Kathleen. Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening. And tonight, tonight, they're not going to mind how we listen to this at night. They might listen at night, Kate. You don't know. At night. I, don't, I don't know when you guys listen to this. Could be at night. Today, we are going to do the letter P, and our episode, as you can see on the screen right there, is public art. We're going to tell you about a lot of the public art in New York City. There are some amazing pieces, interesting stuff, and funky controversies. One of the challenges was, do we tell them about the history of public art, or do we tell them about cool pieces that they can go see today? So we've tried to give you a mix of all of that. Now, our only problem is that everything I'm covering in this podcast doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) I've provided you with one or two things that you can go see. Yeah, but maybe this is a good chance. You can always write us in or leave us a note on our Facebook page and let us know what your favorite public art in the city is. Much like a lot of you chimed in on Ugliest Building. Man, we got a lot... Thank you for all that feedback, guys. That is going to be such a good episode. It's going to be and just really like with good. Ugliest Buildings, we got a million pictures for you to see. So please, by all means, check out the Facebook page and you'll have a, a good idea of what we're talking about. There's going to be a lot of art talk today. Kate is better at that than I am because she's Ooh. an artist and went to art school. I did. So I remembered some of this from art school. I like rehashed <laughs> some of that. Yeah, this is a really visual episode. and Exactly. So you might just want to open the Facebook page, you know, like us and open the Facebook page just so you can kind mm-hmm. of get a good idea of what we're talking about. It would help your experience or look at the pictures beforehand, but you're listening to us now, so let's get started. So the deal with public art is there weren't murals and wacky sculptures at the turn of the century or in the 20s or even really in the 40s. Before the New Deal, public art mainly consisted of memorials and monuments. So there were guys sitting on horses, and there were Corinthian columns, and there were lists of men lost in the Civil War. But it's since the New Deal that public sculptured murals have become common. So this is common in both temporary and permanent exhibits. Then in 1967, the city first really got really serious and demonstrated a very solid commitment to public art, the Parks, Recreation, and Cultural Affairs Group, now that was one agency altogether, they organized the group outdoor exhibit Sculpture and Environment with the intent to make use of public space, put some art out there, sculptures and murals, and it's like an outdoor museum. The works of art are outside of a museum. They are set loose in the city, is how they phrased it. Set them under the light of day where they intrude daily upon our walks and errands. So shortly after that, New York City developed a law that requires, all right, there's some math here. Stick with me. No less than 1% of the first $20 million of a building project plus no less than one half of 1% of the amount exceeding $20 million to be allocated for artwork in any public building that's owned by the city. Short version is they allocated a good chunk of cash for artwork that would be in any public building owned by the city that was built from then on the maximum allocation for any site forty thousand dollars kate has sold five different pieces to the city and that's why she owns two brownstones yeah that would be amazing i really 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 wish if i just say it then it'll happen right fingers crossed all right so kate is going to tell us about one of those new deal 
pieces right now. Right. So we, I'm sure if any of you have seen uh, Frida or if you've seen Credible Rock, which was actually my first, um, the first time I became aware of this piece of art that no longer exists, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see Diego Rivera painting a very famous mural that no longer exists in Rockefeller Center. Kathleen, when you go to Rockefeller Center, have you seen that really amazing Diego Rivera mural on the wall? Weirdly enough, I have not, Kate. That's because it was torn down. So it must have sucked. No, it's awesome. It's really (laughs) amazing. It's really sad because I really hate the mural that's up right now. It's (laughs) That replaced it. (laughs) That replaced it. I'm not a fan. The original painting was, of course, very bright and colorful and beautiful, if you're at all familiar with Diego Rivera's work. Just beautiful. He's a master muralist. It was a fresco mural, which means it's painted into wet plaster. And the reason it no longer exists is because it was so controversial at the time that kind of the public turned against him. And with the public turning, I, I saw Cradle of Rock. I thought it was like some guys in suits who hated it, but it was really like everyone. Well, it was, you know, the newspapers got wind of what Diego mm-hmm. Rivera was going to paint. And once they got wind of that, the painting was pretty much doomed, you know, because mm-hmm. you have a big anti-communist, anti-socialism movement in the United States at the time. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of when this mural goes up and that's kind of what the mural's about. So let's get a little bit more into the background. Mm-hmm. So Diego Rivera is a famous Mexican muralist. Mm-hmm. He is also famous for being married to Frida Kahlo, both famous artists in their own time. And we will put some paintings of his that are not just this, but we'll definitely have the mural. So I would really recommend oh, yeah. like pulling up the mural uh, mm-hmm. so you can see what we're talking about when we're talking about this mural. So Nelson Rockefeller was looking for someone to paint a mural in the lobby of Rockefeller Center. Mm-hmm. His favorite artists were Matisse and Picasso. Mm-hmm. Neither were available when he wanted to do this mural. So he wow. went with his mom's favorite muralist at the time who was Rivera which is seems to me so strange that like Nelson Rockefeller's mom's favorite artist was Diego Rivera something there doesn't I'm, I'm still stuck on someone's mom having a favorite muralist what's your mom's favorite muralist a Diego Rivera no I don't think that's true I don't think my mom has one does yours <laughs> no no mom has a favorite muralist what is with the Rockefeller our moms on the podcast and ask them I'm going to do that. Next episode, you'll be hearing from the ABC Gotham moms. That would be amazing. So (laughs) the Rockefellers wanted to have a mural put up. uh, And so they go to Diego Rivera and they're like, hey, you know what? We'll pay you a ton of money. We'll pay you $21,000 to paint this mural. Hmm. A lot, a lot, a lot of money at the time. We're talking 1933. So this is a lot of money. We've got the conversion down there. Yep. Right. So amazing. He's given, Diego Rivera's given a theme, and the theme is really long. It's man at the crossroads looking with hope and high vision to the choosing of a new and better future. What? It doesn't sound like a capitalist mural to me. No, no, but it could be easily, it could be, it could plug into one person's politics just exactly into another a better future okay well who's better future okay exactly now here's where it gets tricky 
So Nelson Rockefeller is not the person who officially commissions him. He's officially commissioned by Todd Robertson, Todd Engineering. They're the development agents for the building. So technically the building hires him and not Nelson Rockefeller, which is where it gets tricky towards the end. I see. Uh, the full, the, it was going to be three murals in the end. Uh, so the one mural that we'll definitely have up there is Man at the Crossroads, and that's the center. Mm-hmm. That's the one that was fully sketched out and fully realized before it was taken down. And it was going to be flanked by Frontier of Ethical Evolution and the Frontier of Material Development. Um, and there's supposed to be a contrast of capitalism and socialism, which makes me think they didn't know that this was going to be a big socialist mural in the one of the biggest capitalist structures in New York City. I don't understand. But it sounds like they did anticipate some kind of comparison between the two, right? Right. So there's like they specifically ordered a comparison between the two. So there's lots of things where Nelson Rockefeller's like, I, you didn't show, this wasn't in the original sketches. Rivera's mm-hmm. like, you knew my politics. And, you know, there's back and forth and back and forth between them when it starts to go bad. But in the meantime, the painting that's going up is really amazing. The composition, mm-hmm. it shows <clears throat> contemporary social and scientific culture. So the very center of the painting is not what you'd imagine in Rockefeller Center, but it's mm-hmm. a it's a workman. It's a man of the people. It is the mm-hmm. people, you know. It's the person who ma- the turns the cog, the person who makes capitalism happen. Mm-hmm. And so he's at the very center, which is already a little bit weird. We've also got really amazing astronomical scenes with the sun and mm-hmm. the moon. There's so many influences in this. There's also cell forms, and they're supposed to be showing the discoveries made possible by the telescope and the microscope. Cool. So it's really like, it's really amazing when you look at it. There's also mm-hmm. um, scenes of modern social life. So you have, so there's the, the right and the left. So the left mm-hmm. is full of these wealthy society women. They're playing cards. They're smoking. Just kind of this like decadent lifestyle on the left. Whereas on the right, this is where it gets tricky is that there's Lenin holding hands Mm. with a bunch of uh, multi-racial workers. There's also Mm. soldiers and war machines on the top left. And then May Day rallies on the right. So Hmm. he's going back and forth between debauchery and the workers and standing up for labor movement. Exactly. And by putting Lenin in there, you're really pushing this socialist utopia. Yeah. So it's really complex. And I really recommend like opening it and looking at everything that's going on there. Mm -hmm. There's also some really controversial stuff there, especially there's on the right, which is the people's side. There's a headless seated Caesar. So basically he's saying these workers can overthrow you anytime they want. Oh my goodness. So there's a lot to go in there. The one I remember is the syphilis. Right. That comes later. That comes later. Oh, oh, okay. That's never in this version of the mural. Oh my goodness. Oh, okay. I know, I know, I know. The movie's wrong. <laughs> So you start This to is have, your lesson, listeners. You, don't get your history from, from movies. movies. Get it from us. Yes. 
And we're not always right either. <laughs> so in April of 1933, the New York World Telegram newspaper says, starts publishing about this mural in Rockefeller Center, which everyone's been talking about, mm. is anti-capitalist propaganda. And this is even before Lenin's face makes it. Lenin's face really stands out. Mm -hmm. Then L Lenin's face is added, and Rockefeller gets a ton of bad publicity from this. A lot yeah. newspapers writing up about him. I'm sure the upper class is all against him. They're like, well, you can't keep this on your wall. Like, this isn't unexpected. Let's, let's not pretend that Diego Rivera was surprised about this no i think and you know he probably some of it he did just so he could have the controversy sure sure so rockefeller's like hey how about we compromise what if you make lenin into lincoln you know that could be great <laughs> and rivera's basically like no no hmm. like you knew my politics i'm not changing anything so they fight back and forth a few days later the so this is where the development agency gets involved todd mm. robertson todd basically rockefeller doesn't want to be the bad guy so he goes to them and he's like look you're in charge of the building you figure this out yeah make it make it go away make it make something happen so rivera gets paid his money and they're like okay mm. well you're done like we've paid you for your time it's mm. been nice to meet you go away bye so he leaves and the mural is draped it takes a full year, but a year later, they actually, it's not right away, but a year later, they actually break the mural into pieces and tear it down. Wow. Now, Diego Rivera was really smart. He had his assistant photograph everything that he had done a few mm -hmm. days before they came in to kick him out. So luckily, he was able to redo the mural on a smaller scale. And you can see this mural to this day at the Palacio de Bellas Arts in Mexico City. I'm sorry about that pronunciation. Really? The new version also adds on the right Leon Trotsky, Karl Marx, mm. Friedrich Engels on the right, as well so as Charles Darwin. So it's the piece Darwin. he wanted to make. So he's basically like pushing even more buttons with this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To really, like, stick it to Nelson Rockefeller and he can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. On the left side, which is the rich capitalist side that I had talked about, he painted John D. Rockefeller, who is Nelson's father, who was mm. a lifelong teetotaler. Oh. Shows a picture of him drinking with, like, a woman, like, obviously not his wife. And mm. above their head in these bands that, like, stretch out and go over people's heads that I was saying before have, like, you know, the sun and the moon and they have cells. Well, one of those cells right above John uh, D. Rockefeller is syphilis. So <laughs> he kind of, it was kind of his way to get back at Rockefeller for tearing mm -hmm. down his mural. Yeah, yeah. So after they tore down this mural, they brought in a new artist, Jose Maria Cert, a Spanish mm -hmm. pa uh, painter, to come in. And w Kathleen, would you believe if you go see that mural today, who would you guess would be at the is the focal point of his mural called American Progress? Well, I should hope that there's a, if the center is named after Rockefeller, that he should be front and center. No, it's it's Rockefeller's wish. Uh, you got Abraham Lincoln right there, Abraham. <laughs> just like he asked. And if you see it, it's just not that good of a mural. I mean, it's nice. It's kind of bland. 
I think the rock of I think the uh, the Rivera one would have been really amazing mm-hmm. to but, see. You know, too amazing. They probably wanted something bland. You know? Yeah. The it's more neoclassical. It's more like simple. It's mm. it's exactly what he wanted. Um, <laughs> oh my god! But if you're in Mexico City, you can go see the mural that should have been in Rockefeller Center. And pictures of both murals are available on the Facebook page. If you're not looking at them now, check them out soon. Yes. Wow. Wow, Kate. Wow. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Well, I feel like we have a lot of controversial pieces. I am going to speak about one. I'm going to bring you forward in time to 1979. And we're going to talk about something called Tilted Arc. I really like this piece. I don't know why people are so anti. You like the piece. Well, because I'm a huge fan. Like, I love... Interesting. Chelsea doesn't bother me. Like, it doesn't get in my way on the way to work. There you go. Okay, Kate has uh, has hit upon the heart of the issue. Well, let me back up and give some background, and we will get to that. So, Tilted Arc, Arc as in, like, the St. Louis Arc, not like Noah's Arc, A-R-C, was a site-specific sculpture. This was commissioned by... The, the federal government, the U.S. General Services Administration, they had something called the Arts in Architecture Program. They wanted a piece in Foley Federal Plaza in front of the Jacob K. Javits Federal Building. This is in Manhattan. So just to be clear, this is the Javits Federal Building. This is not the Javits Convention Center on West 34th. But the federal building is one of the buildings that surround an area called Foley Square. This is farther downtown, not as down, not as far down as Wall Street, more around City Hall, the judicial courts, and actually the site of where Five Points originally had been, hearkening back to our original episode F on Five Points. So they're looking for a piece of art. In 1979, they decided to commission a work to go in front of the Javits Federal Building. So this has a lot of federal offices. It actually contains the New York offices of the FBI, the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services. Today, the Department of Homeland Security is there. And an outdoor sculpture was needed for this plaza adjacent to the federal office complex. A gentleman named Richard Serra was selected as the artist. Uh, He was recommended by the National Endowment for the Arts, a panel of experts at the NEA, and Kate is a fan. So he's got some some support behind him, some powerful people. Yeah, he's amazing. And also, like, art at the time was really heavy into minimalism. So he's kind of who you go to for a really large work. Now, Kate's not wrong. Yeah, minimalism was hot at the time. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. But first, I'll tell you what Tilted Arc actually looks like. This was built in 1981. Tilted Arc is a 12-foot-high wall made from a thick sheet of unfinished steel. It was 120 feet long, and it curved a little bit, and the entire piece tilted slightly sort of into its curve there's a bunch of pictures available you can look at those right now but right now you can just picture looking down on this big semicircle plaza there's a fountain at one end and the whole plaza is just bisected by this wall 120 foot steel wall it was placed so that it was perpendicular to the flow of people in and out of the building so the workers always have to walk around it So here's what Sarah says of his piece, quote, the viewer becomes aware of himself and of his movement through the plaza. As he moves, the sculpture changes. Contraction and expansion of the sculpture 
result from the viewer's movement. Step by step, the perception not only of the sculpture, but of the entire environment changes." Unquote. Uh, okay. Are you, you're I not, thoughts. I'm guessing you're not a fan. He, mm, it's complicated. I feel like a minimalist piece is a great thing. I've seen a bunch of them and they're spectacular. I feel like his quote just there is 100% horse shit. Oh, yeah. Of course, of course. Of course the sculpture changes as you walk around. Everything changes because your perception is changing. You don't get to take credit for that as the artist. Yeah, but that's kind of, you know, I I know. I had to I know, study I know. All if he just said, "Hey, to... it's cool metal wall. Deal with it, guys." He didn't though. He had to pretend it was Okay, so that's not the point. Uh the thing is this work was site specific. So we mentioned this before, but that's uh, a factor in art. It means that the piece cannot be removed from its location without losing its meaning. He said right. the sculpture is meant to interact with the commuters passing through the plaza, and this is a location that is usually passed through quickly while people are on their way to somewhere else. And most, I will say, a lot of his work is site-specific. It just can't, it can't be moved at all. Yeah, it, it, you put it in another place and it's meaningless or less meaningful. Yeah. Right, or you have to completely take it apart in order to move oh, it. Oh, sure. Well, 120-foot steel wall, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not going to transport easily. Well, this piece immediately got a lot of attention because a lot of people really hated it. Aww. Really hated it. Workers in the area resented losing their ability to, as Sarah said, pass through the plaza quickly on their way to somewhere else. That's what plazas are for. This is a 12-foot high wall. It blocks light. It attracted graffiti but graffiti wasn't even the worst problem. Kate, hey, hey, you know what happens to unfinished steel? It rusts. It rusts. Should, well, this I is interesting. Say, shouldn't we just like take our time and maybe maybe his whole point is so that we can slow down a bit and enjoy admire the rusty wall in yeah. front of you, or just you know like not be in a rush to get everywhere we have to get. I just, I got to read this quote Okay, on <laughs> the Wikipedia page about this wall. It says, the steel is self-oxidizing. Right. And is designed to develop a natural rust-like amber appearance over time. Is that what they said about Barclays? Because that's happening too. Oh, God. I will say yeah. I hate the Barclays Center. You don't get to say a natural rust-like amber appearance when you're actually talking about rust. Yeah. I thought you were going to say patina in the end. Kate, I'm with you. I'm with you about slowing down, looking around, appreciating some art, breathing the air, looking at the sun. I'm totally with you. But. Okay. It doesn't take an ugly rusty metal wall to make people do that. No. Uh, that, that certainly helped. So, at any rate, the self-oxidizing steel was not popular. Within months, over 1,300 bureaucratic employees in the greater metro area signed a petition for its removal. Within months. Oh. Sarah wasn't into that, for obvious reasons. His main reason was it's site-specific. You can't relocate it. You remove the work, you destroy the work. His side argued it could not exist as a piece of humane art. I'm not sure what that means. Unless it remained in the exact location within Foley Plaza. In fairness, he designed the piece with the plaza in mind. He, he 
he had he considered that part of the work. So it was claimed that by removing the physical steel sculpture, the government would destroy the work itself, regardless of you know where it's actually sitting. But because the sculpture forced the site to function as an extension of the sculpture, so since he built it, thinking only of that one site, a lot of people claimed it was in effect holding the site hostage. I love that quote. <laughs> I love the idea. The site's of not going anywhere. Holding an area of Manhattan hostage—that's yeah. Like I love a piece of art is holding an area hostage. That's fantastic. Yeah. There was a great quote from the art critic for the New Yorker, and he wrote, "I think it is perfectly legitimate to question whether public spaces and public funds are the right context for work that appeals to so few people." No matter how far it advances the concept of sculpture. So, in a sense, Sarah forced people to think about art. He forced them to to look into what it is to have art in your life. And what does art do? And art challenges you. And if it gets an emotional response, then it worked, right? I think so. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're still talking about it now. Here we are. Yeah. So, of course, this went to court. The trial involving Tilted Ark is cited as the most notorious public sculpture controversy in the history of art law. Today I, I learned there's a court. thing called art law. Yeah. I love I just love that it went to court. Like that's right? that's my favorite part is that this is so offensive. Someone was mm-hmm. so offended by this piece of art that it went to court. Mm-hmm. A local worker stated uh, one of the guys who testified, every time I pass this so-called sculpture, I just can't believe it. The General Services Administration or whoever approved this, this goes beyond the realm of stupidity. This goes into even worse than insanity. I think an insane person would say, how crazy can you be to pay $175,000 for that rusted metal wall? You would have to be insane more than insane. And there were other concerns beyond ugliness and inconvenience. Think about a steel wall in front of a federal building. Right. It was argued that the work would run the risk of deflecting explosions into government buildings opposite and impede adequate surveillance of the area beyond. So it was a public hearing. People wanted to talk about the sculpture. This is March 1985. There were a lot of detractors, but there were actually even more supporters. So 122 people testified in favor of keeping the piece, 58 in favor of removing it. Notable speakers in support of it included Philip Glass, Keith Herring, we're going to talk about him more in a minute, and Clays Oldenburg. I don't know who Clays Oldenburg Klaus is. Klaus you know? Oldenburg. What is it, Klaus? Klaus Oldenburg. I see. Good thing you're here. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I I love it, but somebody approved this. Like somebody, are you telling yeah, me? Yeah, city didn't have, people like, approved this. Yeah, well, actually, federal people approved it. Yeah, but I'm sure the city had to approve it as well. Like we're putting this out in a public think. space. What do you guys? God, do you see some building designs sometimes, and we'll get to this in ugly buildings. Yeah, somebody had to say, yeah, this is a good idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. <sighs> a lot of people wanted to keep it there. Artists, art historians, even a psychiatrist testified for the sculpture. They wanted it to stay. But a jury of five voted four to one to remove it. The decision was appealed. Several years of litigation, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, March 15th, 
1989. Under the cover of darkness, federal workers dismantled the sculpture. It was cut into three pieces. It is currently in storage. The removal of Tilted Arc's ability to affect the commuters of the Federal Plaza meant for Sarah the destruction of the meaning of the work, and consequently, the destruction of the work itself. But this is kind of interesting. There's this whole trial around this piece, and it highlighted how, for public art, its site, its location, was just as important as the work itself, just as important as the actual art. And another interesting factor about this trial that was new to the world of art and the world in general was that the audience could have some input for lack of a better term audience so both the workers who were intolerant of this and the art community that was in support of this that mattered for the for the piece for the future of the piece it all of a sudden it it matters who's looking at the art and who is appreciating the art and whether they like it or not so that was that was interesting to me yeah I no, I I'm a huge fan of his work. You know, you can if you're interested in his work. There's lots of galleries. Gagosian's usually got something. Um, mm-hmm. Dia Beacon has a really fantastic site-specific room of just his work. Mm-hmm. I think his work is great because it's so big. You have to walk around it. You have to mm-hmm. interact with it, which I really love. And I I just think his work's really beautiful. But I understand the complaint of right it's impossible to get around that's it i i like minimalist stuff i like very stark austere minimalist stuff i love that he used a uh, construction material he used cortex steel i love that that he had this huge canvas to work on but he i don't know it was it was it just didn't work i, th- I feel like if it wasn't so inconvenient it might have been fine yeah, yeah. But the rust sure didn't help. No, it doesn't help the Barclay Center either. Mm-mm. So, we are moving on. Well, mm-hmm. we're we're not doing well with pieces that still exist. No, no, we've only talked about pieces that are no longer here. Well, I'm going to go on to yet another space that <laughs> no longer exists. And this is, of course, five points. And that's five points with a Z. The, mm. Or also known as the Institute of Higher Burden, or also called Five Points Aerosol Art Center. Aerosol Art Center. Did you ever go to Five Points when it was open? I'd never even heard of it until we started working on this episode. It, it was amazing. It was a really amazing space. So it's called Aerosol Art Center. It was a graffiti or street art space. Mm. Um, and so they would call some of the works aerosol art. I get it. Because you're seeing kind of aerosol paint. Yep. yep. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> so it was a mural space at 45-46 Davis Street in Long Island City. Really mm. close, like pretty much across the street from PS1, if you've ever been to mm. that museum. Mm-hmm. You could basically see it from there. You can't anymore because it's gone. Ugh. It was called, you could also see it from the seven line, the flushing seven line. Mm. It was called the world's premier graffiti mecca. It was over 200,000 square feet and was formerly a factory, the Neptune meter. It was a factory that made water meters uh, built in 1892. Mm. And very important, it was bought in the 70s by a man who will come up a lot in this podcast, or at least in this portion of the podcast. Um, and, uh, or a, a family as well named Wolkoff. 
Mm. And when originally built, there were no plans for redevelopment. This was Long Island City in the 70s, which Mm -hmm. it's like nobody wanted anything in Long Island City in the 70s. Oh, even Long Island City in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, when PS1 became what it was, it was really shocking that people would want to go there. Mm -hmm. So in the 90s, he's got this building for a couple decades so this is this is a former factory. This is like what four stories high? I'm trying to picture it. It's four stories high, okay. uh, five stories actually at mm. its highest, and it's just a big concrete ugly block. <laughs> there there are pictures available for you to peruse on the Facebook page. Right. So you're going to see all this beautiful work on the outside. It makes it very colorful and interesting. But just imagine it without the work. So we'll probably put some pictures of it whitewashed up mm-hmm, just so you can mm-hmm. see how boring the building was. <laughs> I'm sure it's sat there abandoned. Like there's nothing going on. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. So in the 90s, he's approached for permission to do le- legal graffiti work. And so hmm. he says, sure, why not? Legal graffiti work, they weren't you know, if you're just tagging or you're just painting somewhere without the building's permission, you know, you can be arrested, you'd be ticketed, you'd be fined. These artists wanted a place to do their work and not have that problem. Um, also, the idea was if we're letting people do it here, they're not going to do illegal work somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So... Or it encourages them to do it and more happens. But, you know, it could go either way. Yeah. So, Jerry Wolkoff is our guy, which you remember. He owns the property. So, Crane Street Studios was officially, like, the name of this space. And at the time, in 2009, 200 artists were paying below market rate for studios. Hmm. 450 square feet went for about $600 in 2001, Hmm. which is, like, an unbelievable price. (laughs) And this is not a living studio, just in case you're curious. This is only for work, like only Mm -hmm. rent to artists. And the name, Five Points, signifies the five boroughs as one. And Mm. it became so popular and so world-renowned that artists from Canada, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Japan, Brazil, as well as artists from across the U.S. would come to Five Points just to work. Wow. Right. Amazing. So yeah. it's, it starts out as the Fun Factory in 1993, and that's fun spelled with a P-H, oh, factory yeah. with a P-H. Sure. Um, by Pat DeLilio to discourage vandalism, like I said, and to have the artist display in a formal showcase. You've got a lot mm-hmm. of these artists who've never um, had a formal place to show their work. You know, they're just kind mm-hmm. of wherever they can get it up. And in 2002, a man named Jonathan Cohen, he starts curating the building, which steps it up even more. So instead of just letting anybody who wanted to come in, he starts asking for samples. If he doesn't know you, he starts asking for samples of work, as well as if you want to do a large-scale mural, um, you have to send your layouts. You have to actually have it plotted out. And the work is constantly changing. Like, it's constantly being painted over which becomes a problem later when they're trying to save the building, none of the work stays for a long time because it's meant to be, um, you know, graffiti and street art is never meant to be up forever. It's just there yeah, when it's Yeah, it's inherently there. temporary. Yes. So it's just photography, right? That's the only way to really preserve it. 
Yeah, exactly. And so this is, he's the man who coined it being called Five Points. Mm. His plan is to eventually convert it to a graffiti museum, the, like mm. one of the first of its kind. Mm-hmm. But in 2009, the New York City Department of Buildings orders the closure. There's big problems because some of those studios I was talking about that such great prices had built mm-hmm. partitions without permits from the city. Uh, right. So it's a fight. It's a fire, fire hazard. hazard. Exactly. Uh, and this all came about be- actually because an artist was injured uh, when a fire escape collapsed. Hmm. So the Wolkoff family decides to sell the building and redevelop the space. Mm-hmm. They go to the city and they're like, hey, we want to put a condo here. And the city's like, awesome, go for it. Mm. All the artists step up and they're like, but this is world renowned. People come from everywhere to see this building. This They've been important. really famous. It's really important. There have been really famous artists, you know, street artists, graffiti artists who. Not not even just that, but like, you know, um, Banksy was really into trying to save the building. He did what he hmm. could. Mm-hmm. Um, so the problem is what I was talking about, how they repaint over the work, is that the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission couldn't help them out because they said none of the art is older than 30 years old. So there's nothing, there's so nothing we can do. the building. Oh. Right. Uh, so New York City Council approves a condo, but the plans mm. include 10,000 square feet for art panels, as well as works on ground level facade, like curated graffiti, kind of what had been mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. But there's back and forth on if that was ever even going to happen. Um, yeah. Now, now the Wolkoff family says like, no, we never actually intended for there to be painting on the outside of the building. Oh, for Pete's sake. And so it was supposed to be this compromise that never happened. There's lots mm-hmm. of protests. Um, a famous one is artists draped a banner around the building um, saying, because they've been kicked out, like they couldn't get in. So they put a ban- mm. their own banner on the building that said gentrification in process. Mm. And the, like, to add insult to injury, Wolkoff decided to use the five points with a Z as a name for the condos. Oh, come on. On. Yeah, he said because he owned the building, he owned the rights to the building's name. Uh, so they're yeah. back and forth in court. They're back and forth with the city on what's going to happen. And then overnight, it really was overnight, uh, the building was whitewashed. Nobody knew it was going to happen. We'll put pictures. It's a shame. Like, it really... Something about the cover of darkness. Yeah. 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 Same, same as when they broke up Occupy Wall Street. That was overnight. Everyone was asleep. It's amazing how fast they did. They just kind of, you know, all this work that people have been trying to save. Right. They would have had to put up scaffolding. I mean, that was, anyway. Okay. Yeah. It happened really fast. I don't even know how, I mean, it's, it, you'll see pictures. It's a big building. Yeah. But, yeah. oh, and somebody must have seen, but overnight was whitewashed and they pretty much knew like they had lost at that point. And as you can see from the image, it's not like the whitewashing turned it into a white building. No. It was, it, it, it's not attractive. It's clearly just them covering up the graffiti. Yeah. 
Sadly, by November 2014, it's pretty much demolished. They're already constructing the new condo buildings. This is the point where the owner is saying, you know, he never really agreed to all that stuff. So pretty much Five Points is just a legacy now. It doesn't, there's nothing, you know, there's petitions going around to try to save Mm -hmm. it, but the buildings, it's all gone. Like it's all gone. I mean, the building's been demolished, right? That's. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. Condos. So there's no saving the building. It's just a matter of what, how much of how much will the condos pay homage to its predecessor. And I don't think they'll really pay that much. They and and a lot of the street so. artists are saying like those walls we even if you ask us those walls will be blank forever. Nobody's going to paint on Interesting. the walls of the new five point. So now how there's How could you resist though? What if what if they do come through and they do have a rotating featured artist exhibitions what if you know well the the, i mean i the artists that were there and the hardcore ones are just saying like no no that bridge has been burnt you've taken this away from us we're done that's terrible it's very sad and i mean this is just another kind you know this entire episode is about public art some of it's commissioned Mm. some of it's like this is real really good example of public art where it really is just put up by the people for the people, you know, and which sadly. is much purer. I mean, I don't want to sound hokey, but like you're motivated to do it at the risk right. of whatever run-ins with the law you're going to have. But you are moved to create. You're mu- moved to to make something visual and arresting that people see and are affected by. And right, and this was just such a great way for people for these artists to get known or and not Mm -hmm. you know in a safe place for them to create their art since then Mm -hmm. it's been really great there have been a lot of artists who have been commissioned now by the city to do street art Mm. really beautiful murals. the ones i would really recommend you go check out if you're in brooklyn which i know i always talk about brooklyn because i live here there are these really beautiful murals in the brooklyn queens expressway underpasses Mm. There are these 80-foot-long murals connecting Dumbo to the rest of the of Brooklyn, and they're mm. all really beautiful. They're done by this amazing uh, Japanese illustrator, Yuko Shimuzu. And, and there's an image there on the Facebook page. Right. They're so beautiful. So go check it out. But this, you know, things have changed. You know, it's really sad that Five Points is gone, and I really mm. feel like it shouldn't have gone the way it did, but... You know, there is a lot more murals and street art popping up in the city that is approved by the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So speaking of street artists, Kathleen. <laughs> yes, I am going to tell you about Keith Herring. Now, I do want to make very, very clear that he has never called himself a graffiti artist. He never identified it. No, uh, I just did. I know. <laughs> but Kate is not wrong, and I'll tell you why she made that connection. And since I talked about Tilted Arc and I like controversy in public art, I looked into early Keith Haring because his early works were executed without permission Uh in advertising poster holders in the New York City subway. So for a tiny bit of background, Keith Haring was born in Cutsdown, Pennsylvania, 1958. He moved to New York in 1978 to attend the School of Visual Arts, SVA. When he was a teenager, he attended a talk by Christo of the Gates, which we'll hear about more in a minute. And he was inspired by the idea of public art and its ability to reach all people, including people who don't go to museums or go to galleries. 
So subway art started in the early 80s. If you've been to New York, if you live in New York, you've certainly seen the ads in the subway. So back then, when they were switching them out, the little transition time between the old ad and the new ad, there's a blank space in that frame, and the spaces would be covered with black paper. <laughs> First day, Harry noticed this. He immediately exited the station, bought chalk, and went right back down to the subway returned to start his first illegal drawing. So this was technically graffiti, although, as I said, he never identified as a graffiti artist. He persisted in this work even after 1985 when he received international fame and big commercial success for his work. He did up to 40 drawings per day. He often did them in front of a crowd of commuters. This is funny. Cops would stand in the crowd as well. allow him to finish, and then would issue a ticket for vandalism or maybe even arrest him for defacing public property. I like that they let him finish. Yeah, exactly. Let him fit. Not going to leave it halfway done. Come on, that's not cool. Herring actually wrote about his experiences with cops. Quote, because the drawings are only chalk and the black ads are only temporary, it's hard to call them vandalism. However, different policemen respond in different ways. I've been caught many times. Some cops have given me a $10 ticket. Some have handcuffed me and taken me in. By the time they let me go, most of them tell me they like the drawing, but they're just doing their job. More than once, I've been taken to a station handcuffed by a cop who realized, much to his dismay, that the other cops in the precinct are my fans and were anxious to meet me and shake my hand. (laughs) So when this would happen, there are some people out there who would cut out the drawing. They're... It's a free original herring. I mean, yeah, I would. It it defeats his purpose, but hello, I'm taking that. But most of the works were covered by ads eventually, and it, it was it's like graffiti. It's there is an ephemeral nature to it. It just is temporary by its very nature. And he was committed to the work, even though he had this risks of running into cops and knowing that it would be obliterated at some point. He was committed to it because it enabled contact with this non-art audience. And what you can see if you're on the Podbean page, there's a link below. There's a brief essay that Keith Haring wrote about his subway vandalism. You can't see his works in the subway now, but there are a couple of pieces around the city that you can see. And there is even a link of all of Keith Haring's works around the world that you can see. But in terms of New York City, Crack is Whack is a two-sided mural, mural that he painted on the wall of a handball court in East Harlem. That was in 1986. It's visible from FDR Drive at 128th Street. He has another mural called the Carmine Street Mural. This is painted along the wall of a public swimming pool at Carmine Street and 7th Avenue. That's in Greenwich Village. He also has two interior murals. One is at the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Services Center. That is 208 West 13th Street. And also the Woodhull Medical and Mental Health Center at 760 Broadway. That's in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. So there is still Keith Haring's work that you can see and bunches of murals and sculptures all around the world. Yeah. What else you got for us, Kate? He definitely, like, I feel like he almost deserves his own full podcast, but we're just going to... Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, it was hard to boil it down. (laughs) Yeah, we're just going to talk about his influence on public art in the city for this one. Yeah. 
So Kathleen brought up Cristo and Jean-Claude, which if you have lived in the city for a while, as both of us mm -hmm. have, especially if you were here in 2005, mm -hmm. you will probably remember the gates. And they are a really, they're really famous for their public art. Um, they, con they consider them environmental works of art. Uh, Christo is from Bulgaria. Jean-Claude is from Morocco. They are a married couple or mm -hmm. were. So very sadly, Jean-Claude died a few years oh, ago. No. I know. They are very controversial because of the scale of their works. Mm. And they also are a little controversial because they always say there's no deeper meaning to their work. It's only about the immediate aesthetic. You see it and you think there's got to be something going on. No, they here. say it's only about the immediate aesthetic impact. Neat. They say it's they are works of art for joy and beauty and they're meant to have new ways of seeing familiar landscapes. Hmm. Which they definitely did here in New oh, York yeah. City in 2005. Mm -hmm. You were here, right? Yeah, I was here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so unless if you weren't here, uh, we will have lots of pictures up. And they were 7,503 vinyl gates along 23 miles of pathways in New York City. They were mm. like a deep orange color, uh, nylon fabric. Mm -hmm. And this went on from February 12th, 2005 to February 27th, 2005. So not very long. Mm -mm. The entire piece was made up of 5,390 tons of steel, hmm. 315,491 feet of vinyl tubing, 99,155 square meters of fabric, 15,000 sets of brackets and hardware. All the textile comes from Germany. Hmm. And when I was talking about all that steel, the one thing they were not allowed to do was attach anything to the ground and they couldn't have any permanent changes to central park no so, bolts in the concrete or the asphalt or anything nope they couldn't drill any holes nothing at all oh. so all the steel bases rested upon the ground but they were not at all attached nice and in order to finance this project the artist sold work uh, their own work to finance this. They say it costs 21 million, but there have been people who've gone back and tried to, you know, priced everything out. And their sure. estimates are like five to 10 million. So they're like, oh. even with installation. So they're like, where is the rest of the money <laughs> that you say <laughs> but you spent? Here's the thing. It's their money. It's their money. It's their money. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you remember the New York Post was like, my tax dollars went to pay for this bullshit art. And you're like, asshole. Actually, Do no. your homework before you start bitching to the Post. Yes, exactly. That's a lot of swear words. Sorry, guys. So it's, if you weren't there, I'm going to go ahead and describe it. It's all of these gates that are meant, they, they're, they're, as I said, there's this bright orange fabric and mm -hmm. if you think about new york in february it's dark it's gray here oh it's freaking everything's cold. Yeah. you know there's no leaves nobody wants to go in central park in february mm -hmm. it's snow on the ground yeah right but this actually was 
made to make people go into Central Park, even at night, to enjoy mm-hmm. the beautiful um, orange glow that normally the park would just be dark and dreary. And this just mm-hmm. brightened up the park for a couple weeks. And it worked. Do you remember? It got people out in February. I know. No, but I don't even go out in February. <laughs> Do you want to talk about But how I was there and so were, were you. Okay. Uh, I found an interesting factoid related to the Gates is that, in fact, Jean-Claude and Christo proposed this idea to the city council in 1979. Guys, it didn't go up until 2005, but 1979. So an interesting thing to know about public art is a lot of it's in our parks, Central Park, but also all of the other ones. And we're going to have a really great link to an excellent PDF guidebook of the New York City parks and all of the works of art that they've hosted over the decades. The concern in 1979 was that Central Park wasn't in great shape. And they were very close to accepting this, having this happen, but ultimately decided that they really needed to focus on getting Central Park to be nicer and safer and a place that people would go to. And that is why it was put on hold for so long. But then we did get it in 2005. And yeah, it was... I don't know. I I liked it. I don't know if I would call it beautiful. I liked what it did for the city, though. I liked that it got people talking about art, that it was strange and unusual, and that it got people out in the middle of the winter. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, it, you know, I feel like it was part of like the Bloomberg Initiative when he was mm. mayor. Um, he's actually the person who put the first panel of fabric up. Uh, or oh, that's fun. Know, got okay. it going. Um, you know, it's kind of part of his like. The city's safe. Central Park's safe at night. Go hang out mm-hmm. in the park. You know, it's kind of enjoy his, your city. Yeah, enjoy your city exactly. And mm-hmm. I feel like it wouldn't have happened without Bloomberg. So hey, thanks, thanks, Bloomberg. Um, it did take a while <laughs> to put up. The work began on assembling on January third, and mm. then just for reference, Bloomberg. Pulled the first fabric on the day it opened. So it definitely took a while. Wow. And I know. And it wasn't up for but like two weeks. Wow. So. It's just art, Kate. It's just art. So there were things that were done to prevent vandalism. So there were staff who were working in the park. So if anything got damaged or knocked over or stolen, they were there to make sure you know, everything was fixed. They also gave out little swatches, which I never saw this, but they apparently gave out little swatches of material to people so that they wouldn't, like, cut up the So they wouldn't cut them. Interesting. Yeah, pretty. I really I never saw a swatch. I know. I wish I had a swatch. Maybe they only gave swatches to people who were furtively pulling scissors out of their pocket? Maybe. Or, like, standing a little too close or, like, touching Mm. the fabric a little too much. But the, but the fabric, it was blowing above our heads. Wasn't it taller than I guess, you? but maybe if you jump taller up. me. I don't know. Mm. So one of the things that people complained about was that mm. bicyclists were like, hey, you're obstructing this, the, you're obstructing these, you know, thoroughfares in the park mm. and it's dangerous to us. And then the city was like, you're not supposed to be on those paths. <laughs> so 
Yeah. Maybe stay on the bike paths and make it a non-issue. Yeah, people complain. They were like, eh, it's ugly. We don't like it. But you know what? It was only That's up for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People didn't. I, I mean, I think it was ugly. It was different and interesting. But yeah. but yeah, I think there are people who did. I remember I when I first heard about it and was finally up and I just uh, finished one of my improv shows and this a bunch of high school kids were there and they had, like traveled from Pennsylvania or something. It was to see the gates and see a show. And they said it looks like construction sites because, yeah, like, how there's a lot of orange, you know, alert yeah. color around construction sites. I'm like, yeah, fair enough. I could see why you could interpret it that way. But who cares? It got people talking about art. Yeah. One mm-hmm. of the amazing things was, so when the first fabric was pulled, they had these little ropes. So you, when it was, they were first unfurling all of these, these gates. Mm-hmm. You pulled on the string and it would all flop down. So Bloomberg did the first one. And it was amazing within a couple hours. They just had people going around the park, like pulling these things. And they were all unfurled within a couple hours. Nice. And then on the last day, Jean-Claude and Christo visited the park just to go around, take some pictures. Because, you know, their work, we were talking site-specific. It's This is all site-specific, but it's also all of their work is temporary. Like they've done things like wrap the Pont Neuf in Paris and the mm-hmm. Reichstag in the Reichstag, yeah, yeah. Berlin. They also had um this I think it's called the running fence in Marin County in mm. California that was there for a while. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a link down there for all of John Claude and Christo's works. Yeah. Check so them out. Their work's always temporary. So they were like, well we may as well take some pictures. And then it all came down. The materials were uh, industrially recycled and wow. passed along. And that's kind of the end of of that public art. It doesn't exist on anymore. On to the next project. Sorry, yeah. guys. <laughs> if you missed it. <laughs> well, there are so, so many pictures and books and films. Even if you missed it, you didn't really miss it. It's out there. You can see it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Well... Thank you so much for listening to this episode of ABC Gotham. Yes, hope you learned something about public art you hadn't known before. Yes, and we're hoping to get you a couple new ones to travel home for the holidays. So we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. For more ABC Gotham, go to our website, www.abcgotham.podbean.com. Special thanks to Podcasting's Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a K2 production, all rights reserved. This night of New York City Or mm-hmm. where one of them died a couple years what? ago. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like I shouldn't say this without looking it up. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Here, say say one died and then say the other died and then I'll erase whoever it wasn't. So, very sadly, Jean-Claude died a few years ago. I know. 
So very sadly, Cristo died a few years ago. So incredibly sad. And actually, side note, it was (laughs) Jean-Claude. Okay, so here we go. They are very 